Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before you hear my conversation with Lincoln Project Senior Advisor Stuart Stevens and his new book, in the hours after that talk, Mike Johnson, a hard-right evangelical quote-unquote constitutional attorney, was elected Speaker of the United States House of Representatives. I hope that you'll listen to this conversation with that knowledge in the context that the things that Stuart and I are talking about are happening in real time before our eyes, everyone. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks, as always, for listening. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Gale. Today, I'm joined by Stuart Stevens, senior advisor to The Lincoln Project, author of It Was All a Lie, and now the author of The Conspiracy to End America, Five Ways My Old Party is Driving Our Democracy to Autocracy, which is newly released and available now wherever fine books are sold. Stuart, welcome back and congrats on the book. Thanks, Ray. Great to be here, man. All right. So it's hard to believe this, Stuart, but you were the first real ad guy ever met in 1998. I was working for a guy named Tony Garza, and he was running for railroad commissioner. Wonderful guy. Would go on to become ambassador to Mexico under George W. Bush. And if I may just tell a story, we were looking for places to shoot and we stopped. You said, I'm hungry. And we said, okay, what would you like? He's like, well, you're like, well, I'm in Austin. So how about barbecue? So we stopped at a place called Green Mesquite Barbecue and you buy two whole smoked chickens. You put them in the back seat and then you say, I'm tired. I'm going to take a nap. And you curled up on the back seat of this guy's Ford Explorer until we got to where we were shooting the spot. And I was sort of like, what the hell is happening here? <laughs> Who has this freak? Right. Yes, exactly. But it's hard to believe however many years on here we are, Stuart. And, you know, you've been with us since 2020 at the Lincoln Project. And this book that you're talking about now is one that feels like second nature to me, but I feel like has a lot of necessity because I think, you know, as you always say, the problem with the lack of imagination is, you know, how big an imagination do you need? But here are the five building blocks of autocracies, and we can get into it. One is the propagandists, no shortage there. Two is the support of a major party, certainly there. Three, financiers, always plenty of money on these people. Four, legal theories to legitimize actions. We've seen that. And last but certainly not least is shock troops. So take us through, you know, your thinking on the book and, you know, a little bit about each of these things, which I think, again, to us is second nature, but to the listeners, you know, they might need to hear a little bit more about. You know, this falls in the category, like it was all a lie, of a book I never could have imagined writing, and now at this point can't imagine not writing. What really struck me about this is, you and I both are, as you say, history nerds, and the study of how democracies fall into autocracy is not an obscure subject, and there's incredible books on it. And when you read these wonderful things like by, you know, Ruth Ben-Ghiat or Jim Mercia there seemed to be a recurring pattern that there were these five elements that were always present when a democracy slides into autocracy. And 
it struck me that we write about each of these, we talk about each of these, but we don't look at them as a whole. We don't look at how they interact in some ways deliberately and consciously interact with planning. Other ways, there's just sort of a synergistic connection between the two. And I thought that that would be important to write about because I think we both feel that if Donald Trump wins the next election or Trump won't be, it could very well be the last election we recognize as one that we would call an American election. I think about this, Stuart, and to your point about the interlocking pieces of this, right? They're not five distinct pieces, although, you know, they have their own features, but they lock together into sort of a continuum of these things. And they're all symbiotic too, right? Which is they can't survive without one another, which is if you had a major political party full of freak shows, it wouldn't be a major political party for very long. But you also had a situation now where if luck is the definition of when preparation meets opportunity, then whether or not it's the freaks in rural Oregon, Washington State, Idaho, waiting for someone like a Donald Trump, the financiers, putting hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars into this stuff for the last 50 or 60, 70 years, the legal theories of the Federalist Society that you go back to in 1982 at Yale, and then the shock troops who go back to the people in, you know, in the middle of nowhere, all of this work had been done, and then Donald Trump sort of catalyzed all of it you know, eight years ago. Yeah, you know, I think that the sort of brilliance of Donald Trump, if you can use such a word, was this animal instinct he has to realize he looked at these people in the Republican Party. He got to know a lot of them and realized that they didn't really care about anything but power. And all of the stuff that we said that we really believed in were just marketing slogans. So, you know, at 16, I was as wrong as anybody, probably more wrong than anybody in America about Donald Trump. I mean, if you just said to me, look, the Republican Party is going to nominate a guy that talks in public about having sex with his daughter. I would have said, you know, man, I don't think that's going to happen. That's not the Republican Party. And then it does. And what is just so apparent is that Trump was right. These people don't care about anything. And they're at a point where democracy now has become not the mechanism to govern, not the mechanism by which society comes together and makes decisions. Democracy has become a threat to their power. But also the vehicle to their power in a strange way. This is always a trait. Democracies fall into autocracies. The autocrats master the use of the liberties and privileges of a democracy to kill it. That's what's happening in Hungary. You look at Poland, it's been on the brink. They seem to have pulled themselves back from that. It's just a constant reminder of this era that we've had. How much of our governing structure, in a broadest sense, is based upon good faith, is based upon differences of opinions, arguments, fights, but there being a consensus of basic values of agreement that's sort of laid out in the Constitution, which is aspirational, not descriptive. But the Constitution in and of itself, you know, if you think about it to its most literal terms, it's a piece of paper with old writing on it. It only has power and magic because we imbue it with those things. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, it's just another thing that Donald Trump never read, like the Bible. And it really goes to the fragility of 
the American experiment, which, why was it called an experiment? Because it was an experiment. And what do we know about experiments? Sometimes they fail. And I think there is both a lot of to be proud of when we say America's the world's oldest functioning democracy and a lot to be terrified by. You stop to think about it. Okay, like what happened to the others? And we have to accept we live in a world, Reed, you know, when you and I and your dad, we were coming up in the party. The one constant that really was dominant was the core of the Republican Party at its most conservative level was anti-Soviet Union, anti-tyranny, anti-Russia. And now that core has become the heart of the pro-Putin movement in American politics. Yeah. And look, I think we're seeing it now, you know, come. It's not its end, but we're seeing, you know, an inevitable benchmark in it where, you know, as we're recording this, the Republicans in the United States House of Representatives have three weeks ago thrown over. I hate to call someone like Kevin McCarthy, who also believes in nothing normal. But, you know, in comparison, now they've nominated yet another guy who's not like he's not normal like McCarthy or normal like Tom Emmer. He's a full-blown architect of sedition. And now it might be like, well, we're just so tired. Maybe we'll go for this guy. And you see, to your point about governing, there's no interest in governing. There's no grown-up thing here. The thing is, how do we get enough power? And you have, you know, you had nine idiots who took out McCarthy because they were unhappy and probably Trump was unhappy with them. And now they can't get anybody because you've got 20 or so holdouts who are like, well, I can't vote for this guy because it'll cost me. But the truth is, even with them, Stu, it's self-preservation, right? They're not doing it for the right reasons. They're doing it for their own reasons, which maybe I shouldn't care about. But at the end of the day, like I give them very little credit. Yeah, 100%, Reed. You know, at the root of this is the collapse of any governing principles within the Republican Party. So the ability to stand up in front of the caucus and say, look, you may not like me. We all are mad at each other. But what's really, we are here to do big stuff. We are here to protect the ruling civil order against tyranny in the Soviet Union. We are here because we care about the deficit. We are here because we care about personal freedom. These are big stuff. You can't say that because they don't believe in anything except power. It's just laughable. And I just keep going back more and more when I, I, I look at these characters and I think about the great HBO show Chernobyl. And they all sort of seem to be like these minor figures inside the Soviet system, these apparatchiks who are afraid of making any decision, afraid of doing anything. They just want to stay in power. Yeah, well, a couple of things there, too. Remember that the apparatchiks, remember, there's one guy, I can't remember what role he plays, but he's in charge of some ministry. And the guy he's talking to clearly doesn't believe he's qualified to run this ministry because he was a bulldozer operator or something beforehand and admits it, but also said, like, I did what I needed to do. And I sit in this chair and you sit in that chair. Right. The other part, too, was one of the great lines of the show. Uh, and Craig Mazin, a friend of ours, you know, brilliant writer, wrote that was, you know, every lie owes a debt to the truth. And here we are. Yeah. Why is it that? There is so much attraction to this group of you know, people that would like to call themselves conservatives, to the Soviet Union, to Russia. On one level, there's a pretty straight storyline here. Russia decided they wanted Donald Trump to get elected president. Donald Trump got elected president. And what did they get? Well, it turns out they got a lot. 
I mean, it's the most successful covert operation in history, obviously. Well, you could even call it the most successful overt operation in history. Oh, yeah, now it's, it's, it's overt, you know. Though, whenever we get into these discussions, which we kind of seem to stop, but did the Russian influence make the difference in the 16 election? They go, well, we know they did this and this and this. And you go, yeah, but the idea of covert operations is not to know, like, what else did they do that we don't know? But anyway, it is a lot about the myth of how they see Russia today that appeals to them. It's all run by white men. When's the last time you saw a woman in power in Russia or a man who was not white? As Putin says, there are no gay people in Russia. Well, they like that, even though probably half their staffs and a lot of them are gay, but that's a separate discussion. They're all good Christians, they say. Right. They use the church as the bulwark against everything. Yes. I mean, you know, the, the Russian Orthodox Church is run by former KGB agents. Right. But like 11% of Russians go to church or something, right? Exactly. It's this myth and a myth of a past that never existed, which is really at the heart of Make America Great Again. And the way that Trump, that's a phrase that's been used, and I mean, Bill Clinton used it, but it has different meanings in the context. And for Trump, it meant where he could go in front of these audiences, overwhelmingly white, and when they, certainly in 16, when they would do these rallies, they picked economically depressed areas. And it became a code of when it was people like us, like you anyway, because Trump isn't anything like these people, and he hates these people. When there was sort of a birthright to being white in America that gave us an advantage that we don't have now. And I think, you know, I mean, I wrote this in the book, that if there is a driving emotion to autocracy, it's fear. And if there's a driving emotion to democracy, it has to be hope. And that is the contrast. The Republican Party has become a party that is driven by cowardness. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Let's go back to tie some of these things together. First, I think it's important to remind ourselves and to remind our listeners Again, that this is not something that just sprung out of nowhere in the last eight years, right? You hear about the conservative youth movement. It goes back to the 64 Goldwater Convention. You know, the Southern strategy with Nixon in 68, which was, you know, opportunism in the wake of the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, as the South was switching from Democrat to Republican based on race. And remember that in 68, George Wallace ran on a segregation ticket and won real live electoral votes in the old Confederacy. Fast forward to 82, as you talked about, the Federalist Society, where Antonin Scalia then becomes, you know, a Supreme Court justice. And now I believe, as you wrote in the book, all six conservative members of the Supreme Court are Federalist Society members. They had, you know, Leonard Leo got a $1.6 billion contribution. He's this mastermind of all this stuff. But even going back to the Obama administration, Stuart, about your governing philosophy, Remember Mitch McConnell, who never, there wasn't a donor dollar he wasn't happy to accept and spend, said, our job is to make Barack Obama a one-term president. And then you paired that with his overarching desire to cut taxes and place 
conservative judges on the bench because they knew even 10 years ago that the country, as you talk about with demographics, is moving away from them faster every day. And the only way to lock in that history that never existed or create that history that ever existed is to put things in place either like judges or, you know, giving the wealthy, you know, so much that they become an oligarchy that now they're only prepared to protect their own interests. And then you bring the religiosity in it with the judges and everything else. And before you know it, it's 2023. We're a year away from Election Day 2024. And, you know, they built up a hell of a head of steam. Yeah, look, it's a fact and it's something we don't really think about a lot. But in the history of America, there are five Supreme Court justices who were confirmed by senators who represent a minority of the country. And all five of those are on the Supreme Court today. And there is an increasing trend for a lot of reasons to minority rule in America. And a lot of great stuff has been written about this. One of the great drivers of that is just demographics. Big states are getting bigger in comparison to smaller states, and yet they still have two senators. So you have a disparity in the number of voters who are represented by conservative smaller states versus larger states. And then when you combine that with the Electoral College, where Trump can lose by three million or so and still get elected president, it's just a, a trend that is really difficult for the founding fathers to have imagined when the difference in size between the original states was much less than it is today, and they have two senators. And you have to ask yourself, how long can a country maintain a unified social fabric when there is minority rule? And I don't think history has really positive things to say about this. No, because what we've seen in the past, whether or not it's our own past in your home of Mississippi and other southern states, in the wake of the Civil War, freed slaves, now black Americans, outnumbered white Americans. And because of Reconstruction, they were able to get elected. And then they realized, well, wait a second, we don't like this. You know, so they used the United States Senate even back then in the 1870s and 1880s to make sure that ensuring the franchise, you know, was something that was not at the top of the list legislatively. And then the Supreme Court didn't do anybody any favors. And before you know it, by the 1880s, 1890s, right, poll taxes, literacy tests, whatever the case might be, you know, then it takes another 80 years to try and roll that stuff back. And now here we are. But also think about in a place like Iraq, right? Saddam ruled over a majority, you know, through what? Force, right? And I think that's where the shock troops come in, which is Trump and his people have always been absolutely willing to utilize violence, to glorify violence, to extol the nature of violence like you talked about and we've talked about previously when he gave his speech in Waco this past April 2023 at his launch rally. He did it in Waco on purpose. It wasn't an accident, right? Of all the places that someone who was president and is now running for president again needs to win votes, I'm just telling you it's not McLennan County, Texas. Yeah, this language of violence has become a part and parcel of the normalcy of violence inside the Republican Party. You know, take our friend Ron DeSantis. You know, Republicans have talked about cutting government spending, reducing the size of the bureaucracy for, you know, as long as we've been alive. But how does DeSantis talk about it? Not that we're going to reduce this. He says, we're going to cut 
we're going to slit their throats. So he disagrees with some of Fauci's policies. It's not, okay, we have a disagreement here. It's, quote, someone should take that little elf and toss him across the Potomac, which is particularly ironic because as elves go, Fauci and DeSantis, you know, DeSantis is about one inch higher, taller than Fauci when he's not wearing his lifts. Well, but Fauci could also outrun him even at 82. Absolutely. So that has become normalized. And your point about the uh, announcement in Waco, I mean, I thought that I knew what this said. I saw clips of it, you know, in the news. But it wasn't until I wrote this book that I made myself go back and read it and watch it. It is as disturbing, uh, certainly the most disturbing presidential announcement in American history. It is really a declaration of war against democracy, openly. It, Trump calls it the final battle. This is our retribution. It opens not with the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States, but that weird insurrectionist song sung by a bunch of felons. And that's, they're very open about it. And, you know, that's, that's one of the things, and, and you've interviewed people that talk about this, a trade of autocrats is they do tell us what they're going to do. There's just a reluctance to listen to them and believe them. And if you look at the plans that Trump world has laid out, they're now putting in writing of what they intend to do if Trump gets elected. If it happens, you can't say they didn't tell us they were going to do this. You know, get rid of the civil service, make the military political. Yeah, that's what they say they're going to do. And when you vote for Republicans, this is what you're getting. And this is what just drives, I think, both of us crazy about corporations who support Republicans. And you have these CEOs and these corporate PACs. Some of them say, okay, we're not going to give directly to the insurrectionists. So instead, they give to the congressional committee that then gives the money, that just launders the money. Or they give it to the senatorial committee that launders the money. But there's just this weird phenomenon of these people who have succeeded in America under the American system beyond wildest dreams, right? And now they're trying to change that system. I mean, do they want to be a CEO in Russia? Really? You want to do that? You want to like worry about which window is open when you walk by if you do something that, you know, Putin doesn't like? And yet they do it. They continue. And it is a strange story of people who are doing things not in their best interest. None of this is in anybody's best interest. It's only really in the best interest of one guy or a small group of people, but they do it anyway. And, you know, that's the one thing when you bring together the wealthy, right, the CEO types, the oligarch types with people of my cohort, right? What you find is it's guys like me who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, educated, upper income, urban and or suburban, 40s to 50s, white guys, good families, send their kids to good schools. And the infection of the Ruby Ridge types or the Waco types has infected white Gen X guys. And I can only think, I don't know if it's this level of sort of ennui, if we're having a, if they caught us right at the time when we're all having midlife crises, right? If it really is like, oh, I hate the woke-topia. If it's the idea that anybody can tell me what to do, I think there is part of it that is COVID, right? Which it was the first time in a lot of these guys' lives that they were ever told they could or could not do something and had to do it. And God forbid, right? They had to do something for the betterment of someone else or for the benefit of someone else or for the protection of someone else. And so it's just one of those things that like 
in some ways it makes no sense, but in other ways it makes all the sense in the world because, as you have said previously, a guy like Donald Trump tells guys like me, some of my friends, be your worst self. It's okay. Be as big an asshole as you want to be. You know, there's a great shift in an individual's relationship to its government from, say, Reagan to Trump. And Reagan, would he would assert that to be born in America, you had one life lottery. Now, there were inequalities. Some people were more advantaged than others. I mean, even Reagan would admit that. But nobody was disadvantaged for having been born in America. So you cut the Trump world. That's been turned on its head. We are victims. There are these powerful forces out there like Canada that take advantage of America and that you are a chump if you don't realize this and that he's going to even the score. And it's a way of seeing the world, the victimhood mentality, the grievance mentality. And, you know, those of us in the party, you know, we used to accuse the Democrats of being victim shoppers, which was probably inaccurate, but we still said it. But now the Republican Party really has become the ultimate victim shoppers. It's looking at the world, and you still have one life lottery by being born an American, but a refusal to admit it. And, you know, it's something you're talking about with the backlash against what happened with Reconstruction and all of this. You know, this is a pattern that happens with any positive movements, developments in a society. So take gay rights, the way in which same-sex marriage accelerated as supposedly normal. 2008, every presidential candidate, Republican or Democrat, does not support same-sex marriage. Now it's become something we don't really talk about. But Republicans, a lot of them never really accepted that, I think. I think they just shut up about it because it wasn't politically advantageous. So I think when you look at this incredible anger toward trans, and this is a way to relitigate this issue. And I think you've talked about this before. You should not be surprised if they try to roll back same-sex marriage. We're going to give these people power, and then they start to exercise that power, and it's like, oh, this is terrifying. We have to try to undo that. And, you know, I, I think that this is something younger voters see. And we've talked about this a lot, that the abortion issue is not so much about abortion per se, but it's about someone taking away a right that you had. And they're going to exert control. And I think that that's at the heart of the intensity now in the abortion issue. It used to be that there was always 65% or so of people who were more pro-choice than anti-abortion, but the intensity was on the anti-abortion side. And it made sense. They were trying to change something. Now that's flipped. The intensity is on the pro-choice side. And we've seen the same with guns. The intensity always was with, you know, NRA Second Amendment types. And now it's shifted. And I think that's a pretty profound difference that we saw play out in 22. I think we're going to see it play out uh, in 2024. Let me ask a question about this whole thing. Not to be overly reductive. But throughout human history, Stuart... Does it always just come down to power and money? Well, let's just step back. What was the most remarkable thing about the creation of the United States? It was the first time that power was voluntarily released, handed down, that George Washington would step down 
from being president of the United States. And this was extraordinary. And it is sort of the miracle of America. And the idea that we would be a country of laws, not a country just of power. And it is against that trend that all men are created equal. Again, not accurate description of the time, but aspirational. That it didn't matter how much money you had. That we were all created equal. Now, the system has never worked that way. Look at the conviction rates for poor people, particularly poor non-white people versus white for the same crimes. The system consistently favors those with money and power. You know, they just came out with the new SAT analysis. Who actually does the best on the SATs are kids of those who make $11 million or more a year. And I don't think that's genetics. So yes, it's still a tremendously inequitable system, but we aspire to that. And we see this playing out with the legal system versus Donald Trump. And when Donald Trump and these Republicans go out and say, if they can do this to Donald Trump, they can do this to anybody. And they say, this is a harm. That is the point. You're not supposed to have any more individual power because you were once elected president of the United States or you had a lot of money or you inflated your wealth to be on the Forbes list of the wealthiest. That is a system as it's supposed to work. And it never has. It probably never will. But I think the continuation of aspiring to this is at the essence of whether or not the American experiment will survive. Let's talk about that here as we round the bend, because as we're recording this a little more than a year away from the 2024 election, as you and I know, political fights, culture fights, all of it is continuous, but we have benchmarks in this country, which are elections. So give us something, anything, Stu. Give us a little bit of good news here. I think the good news is when you look at younger voters. How many people do we think out there in America voted for Biden at 20 who are now are going to vote for Trump? I don't think there's many of them out there. I don't think that it is growing in its appeal. And we have Trump's best group is not atypical of Republicans for older voters. Older voters die out at a faster rate than younger voters. I mean, you know, there are life insurance tables. And the younger voters that are entering the system now, I think, are much more motivated than younger voters have been for a long time. It was always a thing, yeah, younger voters just don't vote, but that's proving not to be true. And these are people that have a vision of America that I think is keeping true with the American pact of what it means to be an American. And, you know, majority of Americans under 16 are non-white. They're going to be non-white when they turn 18. And it is because of that that there is such a frenzy among the autocratic right, which is pretty much the Republican Party, to change the way that we vote, to curate the vote. Because they know that all the Stephen Millers in the world can't change the demographics of America. And had the Republican Party done the hard work necessary to appeal to more non-white voters and those at the lower economic spectrum, they would embrace this. I mean, I, you know, he said, you'll know the Republican Party is becoming a healthy American party when they try to make it easier for everybody to vote. That's what you want. Well, and I thought it was a brilliant notation on your part that that voter fraud has never been an issue for us. Getting people to show up has always been the issue. Yeah. So right? like who wakes up and goes, you know, man, I'm really going to commit a felony today. So I think I'm going to vote. 
Think about it. You know, I'm not going to go knock off a 7-Eleven. I'm going to go vote. All these elections we did, you know, I've had clients who lost close elections or donors that lost close elections, and they've been convinced it was voter fraud. And every time you look into it, it just doesn't exist in America. So a good proof of that is how come Sidney Powell, you know, is, is now a felon. It just doesn't happen in America. And, you know, we should never lose sight of the fact that on January 7th, those that were voting not to certify, where they pointed to voter fraud was where? Atlanta, you know, Detroit, Philadelphia, places where a lot of non-white voters live. And it was really just an extension of Jim Crow. So Ted Cruz, you know, up there saying, we have to stop these people's votes from being counted. Is no different than, you know, asking you know, an African-American in Holmes County, Mississippi in 1963 to count the, tell me how many jelly beans are in this jar to be qualified to vote. And they got less good at stopping people from voting. So they tried to get better at not counting those votes. And at the heart of it all really is race. Well, and as it has been, you know, since long before the founding. All right, Stuart, tell us, aside from the book, The Conspiracy to End America, where it can be found anywhere, where else can our folks find you? You know, for, for better or worse, I still have a Twitter account, Stuart P. Stevens on Twitter. So that's where you can find me and no Resolute Square. We are everybody here to go to Resolute Square. It's tremendous writings, a pro-democracy platform. You can read Reed's great writings there. That's where we are. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP and Substack, the home front. Tune in, read, sign up. Stuart Stevens, once again, incredible writing. Other people talk and speak normally. Stuart talks and writes in poetry. I highly recommend it. The Conspiracy to End America. Get it now. Stuart, thanks for joining me. Thank you, brother. It's great to be here. Everybody else, we will talk to you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.